Well, I am going to break from our Hebrews series today because we find ourselves at a political crossroads. And uh, though we are thoroughly expositional here, verse by verse, I, I think it's important on a few occasions to pause and address contemporary opportunities, contemporary challenges. And I think uh, one part of my role as a pastor is to help us think rightly, to give us biblical lenses as we think about things, uh, to apply the gospel as we learned this morning. I think a lot of times Christians come to both right and wrong conclusions, and even when they come to the right conclusions, they oftentimes do it the wrong way. And so I want to thoroughly immerse us in Scripture and have us think deeply about what is at stake. What is our role as citizens, specifically citizens of heaven who are sojourners on this earth? We've been saved for eternal life, and yet we've been saved here for a purpose. We are, as Israel read, subject to governing authorities, and yet our government is not our Savior. What's the balance here? Is it okay to be a patriot? I would say yes, absolutely. Is it okay to think that somehow we are going to find salvation through electing the right person? Yeah, that's not so good. So what's the balance here? Let me start off by laying some ground rules, perhaps a little bit perspective. Talk about what I'm not saying today. First of all, I want it to be clearly understood that I believe certainly we have injustice in our nation. It is not a perfect country. Certainly we have corruption. Certainly we have real challenges that we need to overcome. We need to continue to create a more perfect union, and we need to work at it. We have problems like education, poverty, immigration, We need to rebuild an economy that has been gutted by this pandemic. Please do not hear me saying anything differently in this sermon. I do not want to paint an unrealistic picture of either our union or of our leaders. That said, we have come a long way in this country. I look out and I see a few history teachers You know that while we were started in a great way, we were also uh, subject to generational sins. And you know what? We've got them today, too. Nevertheless, we were founded upon Judeo-Christian values. That's a good place to start. But let's be honest. People are Christians, not nations. Individuals have an afterlife Nations do not. Nevertheless, the U.S. has been a place of religious freedom, progressive equality, and tremendous opportunity, the likes that I would say history has never seen. Evidence to that is the sheer amount of immigration that we have had, both legal and illegal, over the last 200 years. We've had far more immigrants from Africa than we ever brought in in the slave trade. People want to come here, and yet there's a lot of things we need to fix. So I want to be realistic, but with all that said, 
I believe that we are on the precipice of a radical change. And I believe what is on the ballot this year is much more than a choice between two flawed unbelievers. Let me say that again. I believe that what is on the ballot this year is much more than simply two flawed unbelieving men. I believe it is a choice between a very flawed man and a complete shift in worldview which will open the gates for revolution. A revolution, whether physical or not, or mental, whether violent or not, will literally risk the loss of the sanctity of life, of religious liberty, and of justice. And by justice, I mean blind lady justice with due process, the very cornerstone of our union. And I believe that it is specifically a lack of discernment, and I would say especially by Christians today that are unwittingly willing to give it all away. Because it feels right. My goal today from Scripture is to help us with biblical discernment. Worldview matters. Philosophy matters. Ideas have consequences. We can disagree on a lot of things about how things are to be done. But if we are believers, we must agree with who God is. The ontology of man. His nature as a result of the fall. The way people are. They're not innately good. The reason for which God has designed government. Our response to it. The balance of our response in government. All of these things. Look, I'm not worried about losing our 501c3 status because these are not political things. These are biblical things. We can talk specifics on how to get things done. We can have robust arguments and agree to disagree on certain economic issues or how laws might be rolled out. But there are certain things that are undecidedly biblical in nature. And I believe that Christians, specifically evangelicals, have lost their way. Because frankly, we're tired of not being liked. My goal is Colossians 2.8 this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So don't hear an old, fearful Gen Xer, okay? I am old enough, though, to remember a country called East Germany. I'm old enough to remember... Bible smugglers, and I'm old enough to remember a curtain made of iron, and ideas and worldviews have consequences. 
It is my job to explain that those ideas directly affect life, the freedom to worship, which we are doing here this morning, and the promulgation of the gospel. Pray with me, and we'll look at the text together. Gracious Father, we come before you, and I ask reverently and specifically that you would help me stay anchored in Scripture, that you would remove that which is my opinion, and that I would hold fast to the truth and apply it in such a way that we as a body of Christ will be able to see rightly and advance your kingdom dramatically by your grace and according to your good opportunity. I pray that we would remember the very reason for which you have saved us and left us here to make disciple-making disciples, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. I pray that you would help us to hold fast to what you value, not what we value, not what is popular, Not what makes us look good, but what saves lives. I pray that you would help us find that sweet balance of sovereignly trusting you and resting joyfully in whatever you give us, in whatever situation, even in the midst of persecution, and yet at the same time ardently fight for what is right. Father, may we be found faithful with a robust faith that looks forward to whatever you have in store for us and yet expends every amount of energy and responsibility from our part to advance your kingdom. Bless our time over these next few moments. May I be clear with my words And may this congregation show grace to me as I seek to deliver it rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there has been a growing concern almost weekly, especially for me and a few other pastors over the last five years, in which almost... Weekly, certainly monthly, we hear of well-known pastors, brilliant theologians, solid, solid preachers succumbing to cultural ideas that deny the very biblical theology in which they have become so well-versed. Men who have spent their lives, their ministries, decades faithfully promoting and promulgating the gospel of Jesus Christ only to trim their sails to a cultural worldview, which stands in contradiction to that. And probably one of the biggest ones hit this week. I've already shared it with the men that I disciple on Wednesday morning. He was one and is one of my favorite theologians, and he wrote an article expressing his confusion regarding the election before us. I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs, and then I'm going to to summarize what he is saying. Quote, This is a long overdue article attempting to explain why I remain baffled. Baffled that so many Christians consider the sins of unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant boastfulness, 
unrepentant vulgarity, unrepentant factiousness, and the like, to be only toxic for our nation, while policies that endorse baby-killing, sex-switching, freedom-limiting, and socialistic overreach are viewed as deadly. I find it bewildering that Christians can be so sure that greater damage will be done by bad judges, bad laws, and bad policies than is being done by the culture-infecting spread of the gangrene of sinful self-exaltation and boasting and strife-stirring. If you didn't catch that, he sums it this way, quote, it is baffling to assume that pro-abortion policies kill more people than a culture-saturating pro-self-pride. To which I would say, but the fact is, pro-abortion policies do actually kill people as compared to prideful rhetoric, which does not. The argument he was using is one of moral equivalency. It goes something like this. Certainly killing babies is bad, but if I can say that boastful, arrogant rhetoric rhetoric is also bad, then it presents an equal decision in my mind, relieving any tension of me having to do the hard thing. And it gives me the ability to choose that which feels better without a seared conscience. And I believe that it is this moral equivalency that is plaguing our younger generation, specifically our millennials. Let me be clear from the outset and lay out the argument I'm going to make for you this morning. And if you'll notice, I'm going to read a bit slower. I'm going to be a little more methodical than I normally am because I don't want to be misunderstood. And I also don't want to say anything off the cuff that would not be helpful. I believe that the moral equivalency philosophy is what Satan has repackaged, especially for our millennial generation, in order to minimize the danger and usher in an atheistic worldview that will destroy freedom of worship and the sanctity of life as we know it in this country. I believe it is the gateway to Marxist philosophy. It is the gateway to us inviting in a revolution, whether that's a political revolution, an ideological revolution, or a cultural revolution, whichever. I believe we are on that precipice, and I'll explain why. If you doubt what I'm saying initially, you only need to look into 20th century history to know this danger to be true. This is not an overreaction on my part. This is not what everyone says every four years. This is the most important election of our lifetime. No, there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake. And so this morning, I'm not going to rationalize anyone's character or pretend that we're looking for a, a national pastor. But neither am I going to tell you to hold your nose and vote. 
These seem to encompass the the evangelical positions along with the never-Trumpers. No, I'm going to cast aside all those three, and I'm going to present a fourth one, a biblical option, and one that is robust in our response as Christians. And so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 13. We're going to cover the first seven verses. I want to look at two points this morning. First, our duties as sojourners under man's government. Our duty as sojourners under man's government. And number two, our duties as citizens under Christ's kingdom. We, we got a foot in both worlds, don't we? We got a, a, a dual passport, you might say. One is more important than the other, but yet one does have binding restrictions and obligations upon us. How do we reconcile the two? The Bible is very clear about it. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to guess. It is sufficient for life and godliness. So our duties as sojourners under man's government and our duties as citizens under Christ's kingdom. I'm going to go ahead and give you the practical so you'll be able to engage with these arguments and find support for them. I'm going to explain how I believe voting is a duty, not just a right or a privilege. And number two, our exercise of that duty as Christians is for the primary goal of religious liberty, advancing the gospel, and producing laws that mirror Scripture. The one that's on the docket right now is sanctity of life, but that's the biggest one. Again, I'm not saying somehow we produce a Christian nation. Neither am I saying Christians have to do this. What I'm saying is there are theistic-ish governments and philosophies, and there are atheistic-ish philosophies and politics. And the one you live under, while God is sovereign, will directly affect how we worship and the laws we live under and the lives which are saved. Now, let me me take one step back. And there are plenty of centuries throughout history in which we don't get to live under that. And we live under autocratic regimes. And we live under people like Nero and Hitler. And guess what? the gospel advances, and the church is built. Look, persecution's coming. We're not going to shy away from that. The church will flourish under that. I will do my best to try to lead lead us through that. But we don't have to invite it either, now do we? So let's look at our first one. Duties as sojourners under man's government. I think if we can understand the purpose of government, then we will be able to understand our role in relation to it. This is where people get off. You, you, you've heard a lot during, during uh, this political season, maybe you've read a lot, that uh, it's a person's right to have, and then fill in the blank. And it's a person's right that every person should have the right to da da da. And you're like, where's, where's that coming from? Because my grandpa didn't have that right. Our founding fathers didn't have that right. People that live over here didn't have that right. But, but it's a right for us? Where do you get that? Well, Scripture talks about the duties of government, the responsibilities of government, and then our responsibility to respond to it. 
And if we can stay anchored there, it would be great if we are able to get some of those privileges. But we need to be very, very careful what we call rights. Because things that are presented as rights come with a string attached to it. There is no such thing as a free lunch. And politicians that promise things as rights are going to get power in return. Start off in verse 1, Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. First of all, no one gives authority. No one gives governmental authority, though it may look like someone uh, got voted in or bribed their way in or cajoled their way in. It is ultimately God who has orchestrated and ordained events for this person to have power at this time. We see this in the Old Testament, don't we? You know, after being in in, uh, exile in Babylon and then Persia comes along and it talks about how Cyrus is the king and Cyrus was nowhere near a believer and yet God channeled his heart to be able to send the Jews back home. God is in control. Ultimately, God ordains who leads us. We know this from John chapter 19. Jesus is talking with Pilate. Pilate says, Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered, You have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. We all sort of get this theologically, but it does help to remember that Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So they're ordained by God for a purpose, but what is that purpose? What is the purpose of government? Well, it's to bring order. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. The point is this. God has ordained the authorities that govern us, but He's done so for the express purpose to maintain order and to enforce laws. That is the purpose of governing authorities. To maintain order. To squelch riots. To put down uprisings. To prevent lootings. It's funny, I preached this years ago and I'm reading this and I'm thinking... How current is this? Look, look, look what I wrote. Governments punish crime, squelch riots, prevent looting, anarchy, and exact justice. Is that contemporary for today? That is the duty of governments. And side note here, those who are rioting and looting are not just rebelling against their authorities. They're rebelling against God because He has sovereignly ordained those authorities over them. And I'll promise you, it is not tacky rhetoric from our president that is causing someone to pick up a brick and throw it through the window and then go in and steal something. It is not uh, arrogant conversations and words that are causing people to hurt others. 
Also, those government officials who are not squelching the riots are going to be held responsible before God. They're not doing their jobs. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now look at verse 4, Romans chapter 13. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it is not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Look, if you remember your civics class, we read it this way in our, in our Constitution. Our founding fathers, the government, exists to establish just, justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and... and Schoolhouse Rock, okay, right? Secure the blessings of liberty. They didn't just make that up. Do you know where they got it? They got it from the Bible. They got it from the Bible. They got it from the Bible, and they got it from a law book at the time that was made up of 90% of quotes from the Bible. So if we were to sum the purpose of human government from Scripture, we would say, number one, Governments are to defend the country. Number two, they're to maintain order and exact justice. When we say exact justice, we have to be careful not ever to add an adjective in front of justice. Otherwise, it ceases being justice. The only adjective you can add in front of justice is blind. Lady justice is blind, right? You know what that means? We we don't think about it often. But we are so blessed and fortunate to have due process in this country. We have blind justice, where we are are judged by a jury of our peers. And that justice is based upon the crime for which you are charged. Not your family background. Not your wealth or lack thereof. Not things that you've done in the past. Not who you're like or who you're different then. It's blind. We don't want to lose that. And number three, governments are to regulate currency, commerce, and infrastructure. And the last is applied under authority, but but it fits with what we see under render unto Caesars that which is Caesars. We'll talk about that more, but conversely, the government's job is not to remove an individual's responsibility to submit and obey or work. It is not to become a cradle-to-grave society. It is not to redistribute wealth. All those are contra-biblical ideas. I got a tacky anonymous letter in the mail recently, and it said, uh, I have a sign in my yard that says, uh, vote no for socialism. I just thought, you know what? Though I'm a pastor... That is clearly an anti-biblical idea. I believe that that is what we're facing. I'm going to put it in my yard. And I got, of course, an anonymous letter. And that person said, well, didn't you know Jesus was the biggest socialist there was? And I thought, what Bible are you reading? People have a tendency to think socialism feels better because people with less are getting something from someone who has more. But socialism is not us giving and caring for the poor. It's the government taking. 
and redistributing it for the purpose of power. Jesus was the furthest thing from a socialist. Government's role is not to redistribute wealth, and it is certainly not to create, and this is the bigger one, a false religion of taking that which is good and making it evil, and that which is evil and making it good. If you're wondering why that is continually happening in our nation over the last 15 to 20 years, remember it was only five years ago that same-sex marriage was legalized. It's coming directly from Marxist thought. Karl Marx was the one who said religion is the opiate of the masses. Without a God, you have no morals. Without God, you do not have just laws. And so, understanding the purpose of government will help us submit. Understanding our role as sojourners will help us understand where we submit. Verse 7 gets into specifics. Render to all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. That's right out of Mark 12, 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are, are God's. Now, is there a time in which we do not obey the governing authorities over us? Well, you know there is, but, but it helps to understand when that is. The simple answer is yes. We obey right up till it is contra-biblical. We don't quit obeying because we don't like it. We disagree with it. We think it should be different. We don't just break laws. We obey right up until they tell us to do something that is contra-biblical. John Stott explains it well. He says the principle is clear. We're to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. He continues, wherever laws are enacted which contradict God's law, civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty. So number one, sojourners living far from our home nation, which is heaven, are to submit to the laws in the country in which we now reside. Number two, we're to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2.1, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Submit, pray. Number three, vote. Now, I'm not saying vote for the same reason other politicians are saying vote. I'll explain why. You're not going to find chapter and verse on this one. You know, oh, second opinions, we're called to vote. No, that's, that's not it. But I believe that this falls under the obedience of the U.S. government. And I'll tell you why. If you think about how our government came about, we pushed back against Great Britain. Sorry, Shane, it's just a fact, okay? And what was the rallying cry? Taxation without representation. We said, hey, it, it, it's fine if you want to tax us, but we would at least like to have a say-so in it. We want to be able to vote on the matters which affect us. So it was the very foundation upon which our founders produced this representative republic. And I think they would consider it negligence at best if we did not exercise that right 
how much more as Christians when we're talking about the right to worship. To not vote when the right to worship is under assault would not only be negligence in submitting to our governing authorities, it would basically say, God, I I don't care about this opportunity. By the way, side note here, Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East, feels so strongly about this right that all citizens are required to vote, and they're fined if not. Let's look at our second one. Duties as citizens under Christ's kingdom. So with all that said, we need to remember that we are sojourners. This is not our home, and our significance is not in our country. That doesn't mean that we can't be patriots. We're not pacifists. If we're called to war, we, we, we saddle up and go to war. Okay? But ultimately, that is not our greatest significance in life. So I want to bring balance to this. Philippians 3.20 explains that we're citizens of heaven living on foreign soil. And so our loyalties lie with our heavenly citizenship. And so the question we must answer is, what is our duty as a citizen of heaven? If our duty as a citizen of the United States is to submit to the laws and the authorities that govern us, then what is our duty as a citizen of heaven? One is more proactive. The other one is more out of obedience. I'll explain that. Matthew 28, 19 talks about our greatest duty as a citizen of heaven. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Our call, our purpose in life, the very reason for which we have been made citizens of heaven, but left here on earth, is to make, watch this, disciple-making disciples. But don't overlook that one part in there. It says, baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That means publicly identify yourself with Christ and His church. And secondly, to then make a replica of yourself as a disciple. So we've had this transfer in citizenship where now we're not only citizens of heaven, but we have the great privilege to act as ambassadors. Ambassadors of that country. We have not yet arrived, but our citizenship is secure. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we're to, as ambassadors, as though we were making an appeal. As though God was making an appeal through us. So we're representing this country, and we're talking to other people, and we're inviting them to become citizens. We're representing our sovereign, and we're saying, come, be a citizen of heaven. So understanding that picture will tell us what our civic duties are in the here and now. Think about that ambassadorship. How does an ambassador work? It's a great privilege to be an ambassador. He uses every means and often every person at his disposal to advance the interests of the country he represents. You know, if you get to be, you know, an ambassador 
for the United States to Mexico, you represent the United States. You may be in Mexico, you may live in Mexico City, you may like Mexican food, you may enjoy all the things that they have and the culture, but you're there as an American. And people need to know you're an American. And the conversations you have and the meetings you have and the deals you cut are in the interests of the United States. And that's the sense in which we are to operate. In addition to doing everything we can, using every means and every person to represent our sovereign, we also, watch this, we use our wits and every legal loophole we can to advance the sovereign's interests. We get creative. That's why when the president needs something done, he says, who's the ambassador in that country? He calls him. Who do you know? Who are you building relationships with? This is a problem we're having. Find out how we can push it through. In our case, as ambassadors of heaven, we are to take every opportunity to pave a smooth path for freedom of worship and the advancement of the gospel. Let me say that again. As citizens of heaven, acting as ambassadors, our duty... Our responsibility and our privilege is to use every means at our disposal to provide for religious liberty so that we can gather on Sunday and invite as many people that will come with us as we can to worship our great God and King. And then when we leave here with great freedom to promulgate the gospel, to tell everyone who's willing to listen about the good news of Jesus Christ. Why would we not make such an effort? We see Paul do it. Paul's a great example of this. He regularly uses legalities in the book of Acts to get out of tight situations. He even invokes the nuclear option. I appeal to Caesar so that the gospel may continue to go forward and that he might get an audience with the emperor. So in simple terms, to some, we're ambassadors living on foreign soil who obey by voting our king's interests. Did you catch that? We obey by voting our king's interests. You may say, well, if we were to use every means available, why wouldn't we become you know, politicians? Or why, why wouldn't we become lawyers? And, and, and that may be fine, but you also realize there's a point in which you cross over into representing the other country's interests more than Christ's. If our goal is to make disciple-making disciples, then we do what we can with the bullets God's given us, right? And so this is our primary goal, to vote in such a way that will produce the least hindrance to worship and the promulgation of the gospel, or in our case, to stop the assault of it. And let's be clear, there is an assault on religious liberty. And it's from the Democratic Party. And I grow weary of hearing naive pastors rationalizing as to why their churches are still closed here in the U.S. Woke pastors 
need to wake up. Open your churches up. Open your churches up. Get some guts. Risk a little bit. And gather your people and worship. There are states that have shut down churches for eight months now over a virus that has a 99.99% recovery rate. Don't tell me this is not about religious liberty, especially when marijuana dispensaries and strip clubs are still open. You want to know what to expect with a democratic presidency that has been commandeered by the left-wing socialists of their party? Look at the coastal states. Look at California. Look at New York. Look at D.C. It is still legal to meet for corporate worship in much of California. 15 million residents cannot meet indoors and are prohibited. It is a clear violation of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It is not their place. They have no governing authority on when and where we can meet. Period. They never have. But they're doing it, and pastors are kowtowing to it. And their congregations are running scared and they're standing against the pastors that do want to open up. And now wearing masks has become the new moralism. Come on, people. As of September 13th, South Bay Baptist Church in California has been fined $102,000 for gathering to worship in their own building. Can you imagine? Could we afford $102,000? In Scotland now, which is just a half step further down the road of socialism, I know a pastor who is having to weigh the tough decision of whether to gather his congregation in the face of a 10,000 pound fine for one church meeting. One church meeting. And we don't think of Scotland as, you know, like Cuba or the Soviet Union, but this is what has come about. Through these policies. Look, the Democratic nominee has made it abundantly clear that he is willing, ready, and able to override states and establish a national lockdown. We would be naive to think that somehow we're going to escape that. And yet, we are citizens of heaven. We have to meet, we have to gather. We have to worship our God. Are we as Christians ready to trade freedom of worship for socialistic policies and a guy with better table manners? Is this really a problem? This moral equivalency has just corrupted our way of thinking. Are we as Christians ready for, for secret church? It may come. But for my part, I do not want to invite it in. Are we ready for laws to impact the church accommodating the use of any of those restrooms based upon an individual's gender identity or be punished because we don't use a proper pronoun? You think I'm crazy? 
it's already law in Massachusetts. Look, anyone is welcome in here. Anyone, no matter where they're at in life. And we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to invite Him into our homes. We do not want to erode our ability to worship our King. We have to realize that this new wokeness is committing the same error that was so detestable to most of us when Falwell and, and, and uh, Robertson and the rest of them from the other side of the political fence. You remember that, the whole moral majority? They're doing the same thing. It's just from, they're doing it from the left now. The U.S. is not the new Israel. And most of our leaders are not Christian. And we're not going to usher in the kingdom. Most of our leaders, frankly, are self-serving, prideful braggarts. And I love politics, and I love old biographies, and I love reading about our founding fathers, but they all had an ego. Just because someone doesn't know how to keep their mouth shut in public doesn't make them any more evil. This is why they chose politics. Do we really think that an Obama or a Thomas Jefferson was less prideful because they knew how to hold their tongue? Look, our president's going to have to answer to the Lord for his tacky rhetoric. I don't want to minimize that at all. He's going to have to answer to the Lord what's in his heart. I don't think, short of a genuine believer on the ballot, that, uh, that we need to trim our sails and change otherwise. We are to vote for those whose self-serving interests protect religious liberty. Did you catch that? We need to vote for those who, even for ignoble reasons, their self-serving interests promote the freedom of worship. Why? Because we're ambassadors, and we'll work with who we have to work with so that the gospel goes forward. Now, I'm not talking about compromising immorality or the office or anything else. Don't hear me saying that. Here's what will make it easier. Here's why it's so hard. First of all, I want to understand Look, I, I, grew up under, I grew up under guys like, you know, Reagan. I remember nobility, kindness, leadership. I remember all that. So I understand. We're, our, our hearts are inextricably sort of knitted together with our country. We love it. And so it hurts us when there's things we don't like, or we don't like how it's been said, or we cringe. I get that. But imagine, if you will, that all of a sudden I took you out of here and I placed you in a, 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 a Latin American banana republic, Okay. Sorry, Martin. Okay. Not talking about Peru. Or, or, or a former Soviet bloc nation. And now you are a citizen of that country, and you had to vote for that which would give you the greatest religious freedom. You pick according to the corrupt politician, whether he's a corrupt businessman or ex-KGB guy, that would give you the greatest religious freedom. We get it. It's that clear. We're just muddied by our own uh, situation, our own experience here in the United States. So I get it, but I'm telling you to get beyond the sentimentality. So understanding all this, you got five minutes, let's, let's do some, some practical. Let's look at the platforms and the policies that guide our decisions. Democratic platform, 2020, quote, Democrats believe every woman should be able 
to access high-quality re reproductive health care services, including safe and legal abortion. We oppose and will fight to overturn federal and state laws that create barriers to women's reproductive health and rights. In 2016, Planned Parenthood gave the Clinton campaign $30 million. This year, they've tripled it. It's not a gift. It's blood money. It's blood money that they're buying a position. Secondly, Biden and Harris have committed to overturn the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits the federal funding of abortions. Translation, the Democratic ticket is asking for your vote so that they will enact laws to use your tax dollars to pay for the murder and dismemberment of children. It's that clear. Christians cannot vote for a candidate who is committed to the murder of innocent children. That's biblical. That's not political. That's biblical. Let me speak to my pastor friends for a moment. Again, the woke need to wake up. There was just a survey put out from Reformed Evangelical pastors on whether they would talk about this in their congregation. Overwhelmingly, they wouldn't do it. And overwhelmingly, they were going to tell their congregation it really didn't make a difference. They should just vote their conscience. Hey, either truth is true or it's not. There is no more room for a pro-life Democrat. Those days are gone. The party has been hijacked. Thirdly, Biden again, let's be clear, quote, transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. If you saw the most recent debate, he said that an eight-year-old child should be free to decide whether they want to be transgender, and the implication was that the government should enforce that freedom. Look, when I had eight-year-olds, I didn't let them decide what they wanted for breakfast because they would change their mind five minutes later. That's absurd. You know what that is? Let me explain to you. That is Marxist philosophy where you create oppressors and oppressed, and I buy votes by putting you in an oppressed category, and you look to me, though I'm not like you, to free you from that and to give you power. And when you give me your vote, guess what? I keep the power. Come on, it's right out of the Russian Revolution. It's right out of the Bolshevik Revolution. It's never worked. Look at the 20th century. That philosophy killed, by even Wikipedia's counts, 100 million people. Russia, North Korea, Cuba. Where are my Venezuelan sisters? Yeah, right? Ask Barbara. Ask Barbara what her country's like now. horrible. Now, Trump, he promised a lot on pro-life issues. Did he deliver? Now, number one, he was the first sitting president to address the annual March for Life in person. He defunded Planned Parenthood instead of the police. 
He reinstated the Mexico City policy, which prevents, watch this, approximately $9 billion of foreign aid from being used to fund abortions internationally. He defunded the UN funding of abortion by the U.S. He overturned an Obama regulation, which Obama put in just two days before he left office, that would prohibit states from defunding many of their abortion clinics. To date, he has appointed 218 pro-life federal judges, including two Supreme Court justices, and tomorrow, Lord willing, a third will be confirmed. For the first time in 37 years, after 62 million murders, we have a real opportunity to strike down this genocidal law and never thought I would see it in my lifetime. And if I hear another pastor use the moral equivalency argument, well, I'm pro-life from the womb to the tomb, or I'm pro-life and pro-living, which means social justice, I'm going to come out of my skin. Do not water down the heinous murder of children and try to equate it with someone not getting free college education. I'll promise you they would have rather lived under adversity than been killed without a choice. That's your choice. And with regards to religious freedom, Trump created the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division in order to protect religious liberty. He's been faithful to uphold the right of a church together. He has supported John MacArthur and his fight against a socialist California governor. Heck, I'd vote for Napoleon if he delivered results like that. We've been left here to do a job. And I don't want to make it harder on ourselves to do that job of Great Commission work. Hear me. I do not think we have a savior in this candidate at all. I do not think he's a believer at all. And shame on those pastors who tout him as though he is. That's ridiculous. But for whatever reason, he has chosen to take his self-interest and align it with a theistic theology of government. And it benefits the church and protects our religious liberty. And so for that, and especially because he's proved it, I would say, don't waste your bullet. Think about this as an assault on the gospel, because it is. Biden's already said we're going to have a dark winter. He already says he wants a national shutdown. We could be shut down and not allowed to meet by January. There's not a thing our governor could do about it. If we are trying to stop an assault on the gospel and on life, then both not voting or third-party voting are wasted efforts. Think about it in terms of a, of a battle, and you've got your one Barney Fife bullet, okay? Right? To not fire it, to not vote for anyone, is a waste. You're not stopping anyone. To vote third-party, you're firing it in the air. A third-party vote is a vote for Biden. This is not a lesser of two evils argument. This is not Republicans are great, Democrats are evil. This is what is on the platform. 
One mirrors Scripture. One mirrors evil. One mirrors life. One mirrors death. That's not wading into politics. That's just preaching the Bible. A lesser of two evils argument still has the focus on what's best for our country. This is voting for what is best for our king and his country. And so I'm asking you not to just hold your nose. Let's fight for our religious freedom. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of our children.